0: After first service, this really sweet lady named Betty Reddickup comes up to me and she goes, after you play that Lamb Down song, you can't make fun of country music. I said, yes, I can. I'll give you two things as we get going today. Uh, Number one, April 19th is our next baptism. So it's about two months away. If you've been thinking about getting baptized or having some questions about it, uh, we're going to do a couple informational meetings leading up to it. So if you would like to be baptized, a lot of people say... You know, what does Jesus want me to do? Well, very clearly in the scriptures, Jesus says, if you're a believer, you get baptized. It's not magical. But what it is, it's kind of like this spiritual thing between you and the other believers in the church that you go to, between you and God, that you are covenanting to live and follow him all the days of your life. Uh, the early church is held together by two essential rites, which were communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. It was a public way to say, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of My life. So, if you're interested in baptism, sign up in the back. I'll let you know when the informational uh, meetings are, and then we'll set that up and kind of get you going in that. Uh, Also, March 14th, March 14th, we are going to actually do a men's breakfast. We're going to get you dudes together and talk about some things. And the reason I'm bringing it up here and now because ladies, March 14th, write that in the calendar so you can tell him and remind him where he's supposed to be. On March 14th, because guys are like, "All right, woo, we're gonna have bacon." It's a what? It's a pie day. It's a super pie day. Well, we're going to have a pie full of bacon. (laughs) Dudes eat dead pigs, so we're having bacon. Praise God. So, all right, so mark it down, let them know, uh, we're going to do this breakfast, uh, kind of maybe kick some things off, get some things going, um, remind you guys how there actually is a gospel community we, every month get together for breakfast to pray for each other. Uh, we're going to try and get a whole lot of you there and get a lot of you guys plugged in a bunch of stuff, so there you go, March 14th. If you're new to Element, uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, inside there, you'll get some notes about what we're talking about, some questions that go along with it. On the back, there's some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you get to download an app. It is called Uversion, so you don't have to shut it off. Just actually download the app and click on live in there. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, so why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? We'll get started. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people to be those who understand more fully who you are and what you have done in and through us and for us. That we'd be a people who constantly stand in amazement of the gracious goodness of who you are and how you have sought to rescue and redeem your lost and broken people. I ask that you would teach us to be those understanding that faithfulness and goodness of you that we in turn then would be faithful because you were first faithful to us. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so we are uh, in a series that leads all the way up to Easter. Uh, We're calling this series kind of a season of Lent. Uh, We're starting this by actually going through different churches that Jesus wrote letters to in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you don't come from a tradition that normally celebrates Lent, we don't either. Okay, but we're just doing something a little bit different. Uh, Lent was meant to be a season of reflection. Uh, that we allow Jesus' Spirit to come in and look deeply into all the hidden crevices in our hearts to pull everything out that's inside of us and lay it bare so we begin to live in the gracious and the goodness of the newness of life. Lent is always pointing towards the idea of Easter and resurrection. So by the time you get there, we've done all this work, the Spirit's done, all this work in our hearts and souls. So when Easter comes, it's a celebration and it's joyous and it's loud. I got more of you this week than last week. Okay, we'll see how this goes as we go through all seven of these. Uh, today, we're going to uh, jump and look at the second church in the book of Revelation called the Church of Smyrna. Uh my, my brother actually asked me about this a little bit. He goes, he goes I don't understand, because he didn't, you know, grow up reading the Bible and stuff. And, and actually neither did I, but he hasn't gone to school. And so, I, so I explained this to him because I said, when you read through it, if you have some Bibles that put all of Jesus' words in red, right? You look at the red letter Bible and stuff like that. Uh, if you were in the book of Revelation and you had a red letter edition, all this would be in red. Uh, it's all written from Jesus written down by John to these churches. So sometimes I use John and Jesus interchangeably. John's writing these things. Jesus is saying these things. Now, uh, the church of Smyrna, it is modern day Izmir in Turkey. Uh, this is where it's originally located. Uh, in the day that this was written, it is, there were 60 to 100,000 people living in this city. Uh, Christianity was established in its infancy here, and there's some debate as to the amount of persecution the church is undergoing. Uh, Some scholars believe there was a widespread, empire-wide persecution of the church at this point. Uh, I don't actually think that's the case, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Uh, The letter to the church of Smyrna, it only includes encouragement. That's all it includes. There's no rebuke, but that doesn't mean I can't find something to make you feel guilty about by the end of this. Trust me, okay? (laughs) Okay. I am a professional, I can do it. Uh, The name of the city of Smyrna has different connotations. The Hittite meaning of the city was the city of the mother goddess. Uh, They had a large temple devoted to worshipping the mother goddess. The Greek name of the city means the city of myrrh. Myrrh, if you remember, is what some of the wise men brought to Jesus. Myrrh was an embalming fluid, but also a perfume. It's kind of interesting. That's both those things. Uh, Today, there are actually very, very few churches in Turkey. Uh, Modern day Turkey tends to be a little bit hostile towards the gospel, which seems odd because if you look in the New Testament, Two-thirds of the New Testament can be traced from this area. Two-thirds of it. Of the 74 million people who call Turkey home today, uh, when they do studies, only about 3,500 of them will claim to be Christians. That is point, half of .001% claim to be Christians. In cities today like Izmir, modern-day Smyrna, out of the 4 million people who call that city home, uh, only uh, hundreds will actually claim to be believers in that city. Now, the book of Revelation, it has strange and violent and bizarre imagery all through it. But some of it is also very comforting. And what has happened is a lot of people come to the book of Revelation and they take all their assumptions and they throw it onto the book. And that's going to skew how you read it. And I'm sure my assumptions skew how I read the book as well. One of these assumptions is that John is writing about things solely in the future. So it's all about the future. That's going to skew how you look at the book. Some people say it's only about the past. It's going to skew how you look at the book. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, There's also, again, this assumption when John is writing, there's this empire-wide persecution uh, that the uh, government is trying to take out systematically all the Christians that were there, and that's why they're suffering, and they say this, and this is because there's so much violent imagery in the book, this is why that's in there. Now, this letter, again, as I said, is going to have different meanings depending on how you come at it. Now, I think at the time when John is writing this book, there isn't really a lot of evidence for an empire-wide systematic persecution of Christians. It doesn't mean that there wasn't any, I'm not saying there's not. Uh, But it wasn't as something that's widespread like the Diocletian persecution, if you know what that is, that took place a little bit later. It doesn't mean there weren't outbreaks of persecution in areas, because there were. And Rome really didn't care what in the world happened to Christians. Like, oh, you stabbed a Christian? Alright, whatever. No big deal. They didn't really care. And I think we got to keep it in mind that there's probably not an empire wide persecution at this point, because it's going to inform how we read what what John and Jesus say here. Uh, You get the geography of the area, it's going to inform you as well. And so this right here is a map of the ancient world. Uh, This is the Roman Empire. This is essentially the entire known world at the time. Rome actually ran the entire known world. Now, this right here is a picture... Of the close-up version of the area that we're talking about. So there's, you know, Roman Italy's booting over here. And this is a blown-up section of the area. Now, all over the Roman Empire, there's always these little rebellions that keep popping up and taking place. Eventually, there was one place where these, all these rebellions stopped, where they actually started to serve the empire wholeheartedly. You know where that was? Right there. It's called Asia Minor. They started to serve the empire wholeheartedly wholeheartedly. They love the things that Rome brought in to their area, and so they actually had it pretty good. Uh, the, the, all the, the seven cities that these churches of Revelation, these letters are written to, actually would, these cities would have a competition to see who could love the empire the greatest. And when we get to the church that actually won, I'll tell you about it. And it's really funny. Uh, but, so they had this, oh, everything's great. And so you could live in the city as a church, and you could actually be doing pretty good. Things should be going pretty comfortably, kind of, kind of well for you. But really I think the major struggle then starts to become is how do you present the gospel in this city who is so in love with the empire they want to hear nothing else that are okay with worshiping Caesar as God. That's worshiping you know, him as the spokesman for the gods. And and so what started what I think could have started to happen in a church like this is that they would start to do church as what's called a mirror. So they start to just mirror the culture around them. Last week we talked about church as a bomb shelter, you know, which is where you go and you hide and don't want to go outside and talk to anybody else because it's really safe with people who believe just like you do, so you stay inside and don't go anywhere. Well, church as a mirror, it's the exact opposite. It goes down and it starts to mirror the culture around them. A lot of times this becomes more and more liberal churches. It's like whatever a culture believes, that's what we're going to do. That's that's who we are. Uh, the easiest way to see this today is on issues of Scripture, uh, maybe gender issues, because what the Bible says is all sex outside of marriage is a sin. Now, a church as a mirror would come in and they would say, oh, well, that's not what the culture believes, so we're not going to believe that either. And what you also have to understand is that there's a a whole difference in that between welcoming and affirming. We should welcome everybody, okay? But it doesn't mean we affirm things that the scriptures do not. And so what happens is a lot of these churches as a mirror, they start to mirror the culture and not the scripture. And that's a problem because it's compromised. In one sense, it could be good because they understand what's going on in the culture around them. Uh, But what's happening is not trying to redeem the culture. They're just trying to go along with it because it brings a lot more comfort. Uh, We could have called this message, more aware but less helpful. But maybe not. Because Smyrna didn't really fall into that trap yet. I think they may have started to lean that way because of some of the words that Jesus say. Again, none of Rebuke, but it is really interesting. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 8. Again, I think this letter to Smyrna is not necessarily about persecution as we think persecution. But I think it's more about seduction. I think it's more about seduction. It's one of the reasons why many of John's letters to these churches, when Jesus says these words, it shows you the difference between worshiping Jesus and him only and worshiping Jesus plus anything else. Uh, Billy Graham's grandson wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And that's kind of it. I think that these letters are a way to separate those things in these churches' minds. And when we also read through uh, these words, you have to understand it's like listening to half a phone conversation. I mean, you're getting Jesus' words, but you don't know the other side of the conversation. So we're just getting one side of this. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, we understand uh, that Jesus is talking here, right? Jesus is the one who died, came back to life, you know, paid for our sin. Everything that separated us from God and us and each other. Jesus paid for it at the moment of the cross. He raises to new life, brings us new life. It's a beautiful thing. So John doesn't have to say Jesus because he says it in a much more pronounced way to this church. John actually describes Jesus to this church in this way for a reason. In 600 B.C., the Lydians invaded Smyrna, and they destroyed the city. I mean, just annihilated it. For 400 years, it was a city of, like, ruins and ashes, and that's all that it was. Then about 200 B.C., uh, different scholars say different reasons why. Nobody really agrees. But about 200 B.C., something happened, and Smyrna kind of sprang back to life again. It becomes this thriving power. And so some people started to call the city of Smyrna the city that died and came back to life. And so when these words get said, they mean something to the city. It's like Jesus saying, I know what it's like to be you. You know, I'm God and I'm compassionate, but I too died and I came back to life. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now the word tribulation there, this is the word lipsis. okay, lipsis. And it appears in the scriptures and usually when it's written, what it means is internal pain or internal pressure. I know your tribulation, something that's forcing you to be different than Jesus calling you to. I understand that pressure. I see what's going on. The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, that is not actually an anti-Jewish sentiment. It sounds that way to our ears, but, but but it's not really. Because at this time, there isn't really a big distinction between Jews and Christians. Because what happened is Christianity just believed it was the fulfillment of Judaism. And so what you have is, is, who's the truer Jew? And they're arguing with each other. Is it the ones who deny Jesus the Messiah? Or is it the ones who follow Jesus as the Messiah? And then even those who follow Jesus as the Messiah, they'll say, but we got all these Jewish laws we got to follow. And others would say, no, no, it's just about grace. And they start slandering throwing words at one another. And I'm so glad Christians don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, just just like that. Religious people, every religion of every age are, are big on slander. And so what Jesus is saying, Jews, those who follow God, should be better than name-calling. You should be better than name-calling. The line is actually elevating to the call. It's not necessarily demeaning to them. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some of your Bible versions say life as your victor's crown. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, when we read those words, like a persecution, all of a sudden we've got all these images of like brutal persecution, and you tied up, and someone's got a hot fire poker, and they're sticking in every bodily orifice that you got, and just, ah, right? And then after ten days, you're going to die anyway, so it's not a big deal. And that could have happened. I'm I'm not saying it didn't happen. Uh, even one of the larger in life figures that actually came out of this city was a guy named Polycarp. Y- yeah, his mom loved goldfish. Apparently, I got it. Okay, but po- Cart whatever, okay. Um, Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He becomes a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, Here's a Artist rendition of what they think he looked like, very holy in his vestments there. Uh, Polycarp became a Christian as a, as a young kid, again, discipled by John. John eventually sends him to the city of Smyrna. Now, when Domitian becomes emperor, Domitian starts this emperor-wide persecution of Christians. And so this delegation of Christians gets together and decides, we're going to go to Rome and talk to him about this. Polycarp is one of these guys who went on this delegation. Now, on the way there, he actually gets arrested. And he is tried, and he is convicted, and he is sentenced to death. And they say, hey, you know, why don't you just deny Jesus, and then we won't kill you. And he said, no, no, Jesus alone is Savior and Lord and God, and, and I trust and I follow him. And They take him to the place of his execution. They're actually piling the lumber at his feet. And they, and they say to him, you know, if you just worship Caesar as God and deny Jesus, we'll let you go. And this is what they said as they were preparing to burn him. He says, for 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. They're getting ready to burn him. At the stake, wood at his feet, tied up. And what does he say? Jesus has done me, no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burn him. Now, eventually, word of this goes back to the city of Smyrna. You know how they responded? They didn't respond in revolt. Let's kill them all! What they did is they doubled down on their faith. They trusted Jesus even more. And they started to love the Roman Empire around them even more. And that's what made a difference, and that's what changed things because of their leadership's example. But again, that was, I think, years after this was written to this church. So uh, I think there's another way to actually read this. What if at the time when they received this letter, there wasn't a lot of bad persecution going on? And so what if the range and the meanings of all the words that are used here could actually be different? And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to contradict maybe the other view of persecution, but I'm going to give you another angle on it, different spin. Okay? So he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Uh, suffer right there is the word pashko And what it means is emotional sorrow, loss of a loved one. Uh, you you got a puppy and it ran away. You're like, oh, my puppy's good. You know, It's this deep emotional pain and sorrow. It's not usually used of physical suffering, but emotional suffering. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, the word for devil, it simply means adversary. So an adversary is going to throw you into prison that you may be tested. The word tested is the word parazo. And it means to ascertain the quality of something. Proverbs 17.3 says, the crucible is for silver, and that's where silver is going to be tested. And it says the furnace is for gold, so the furnace is where gold is tested, and the Lord tests the heart. God's interest in our hearts, and it says that it's, it burns hotter than the furnace or the crucible. That's where our hearts are tested. And so this has the idea that there's going to be an enticement to sin. And how are you going to handle that enticement? And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Some translations will use the word persecuted. A 21st century mind, when we hear the word persecuted, we think of, you know, like beatings and rapings and burning at the stake and all that. But again, the word tribulation here, it's the word flipsis. It's the only word that's used here. And it means interior pain or interior pressure. And it kind of brings a different tone to the passage. Because when you look at it this way, there's some sort of emotional trauma, inner turmoil that you're going to experience and go through. It's going to last for 10 days days. Now in the book of Revelation, numbers are almost always a symbol for something else. Ten or a thousand, they're symbols for a complete amount of time. Like ten would be a short amount of time, a thousand would be a long amount of time. Like uh, ten, uh, if you're married ten days, that's a short amount of time. If you've got to listen to country music for ten days, that's a long amount of time. Okay? Long. Now, So it could mean short, it could mean long, but whatever it is, what it means is ten days, it means it's complete and there's an end to it. There's an ending to what you're going through. That's the main thing. So then he says, be faithful unto death. or faithful unto death. Now, we hear this and we think, oh, it sounds like you're going to die. Unto death, it's coming. The Greek word there really means until. Be faithful until death. Be faithful for the rest of your life. Be faithful for as long as you live. It could be a traumatic persecution. and You die right then, boom. Or it could be dying at a good old age. What it really means is all of your life. Be faithful. Be faithful. And then the reward. And I will give you the crown of life. It's a great word-for-word translation. Some of your versions say life is your victor's crown, which is kind of the thought behind this. Uh, in the ancient world, I'll show you some pictures here in a minute. Every coin had a picture of Caesar. And on Caesar's head was one of two types of crowns. So here's this first picture. Okay, So here's, here's a picture. With, a, with Caesar's got this crown on his head. Go to the next one. This is Caesar with a different type of crown on his head. Go to the next one. And here he is, another type of crown, he's riding a horse, he's got that same crown I said, how, how wonderful. Now, when Jesus and John here are writing this stuff down, they're saying these things, they're bringing images of the Roman Empire to these people's minds. Crown in Greek had two different words behind it. So the first one, go to the first slide there, is the first word is the word diadema, which is diadem, which is a crown of power, of ruling and majesty. This is what Caesar's word, that right there, that's a diadem crown. Okay. I rule everything. But on the back side of the coin, see that little kind of wreath thing? That's actually symbolic of what's called a Stephanos crown. Go to the next slide. This on his head, see, has the laurel crown? That's a Stephanos crown. Go to the next one. And so in this, what you see is you'll see that sometimes, you know, Caesar is wearing the diadem crown, but sometimes he wears the Stephano's crown. Some coins actually have one on the front and then one on the back. And what it says is Caesar rules everything. And on the back, it says the Stephano's crown is a victory crown. I'm better than you at everything. I run better. I ride a horse better because I'm Caesar. Not because you ever saw him run or ride a horse, but that's the kind of thing. It's a victor's crown. If you run a race, you get a Stephanos crown. It's a victory crown. In Revelation here, when Jesus says you get the crown of life, the crown he gives you is a Stephanos crown. It's a victor's crown. We don't rule. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. We have victory as our crown because Jesus has won the victory for us. He is the one who reigns and rules over everything, including Caesar, and he gives the victory to us. Now, if we were to make a paraphrase of this, of Revelation 2, 8 through 11, it could be read like this, and I'm not saying it is. I'm I'm not a total Greek scholar here, but I think just from the wording and stuff, I think this could also make sense. Do not be afraid of experiencing sorrow. I tell you, the devil will imprison you, and you'll be put on trial, and you will experience turmoil, but it won't last forever. Be faithful every day for the rest of your life, because I have won the victory for you. Jesus wins. You win. That's kind of the idea behind it. Now, in context of this city and where it's sat and what privileges its health, I think what Jesus is saying is, don't be afraid if you lost everything. If you lost all of your comfort. If you lost everything that you knew. Because sorrow can and sorrow does come. But being faithful to me is what matters above all of that. Now, why do I think this is important for you and I living in America in and, and 2015 and doing Lent and how this can really speak to our hearts? Well, I think in America today, we're entering into some scary waters in terms of our faith. Uh, D.A. Carson once said that one generation will believe and fight for something, the next generation will assume it to be true, the next generation will question it, and the next denies it. It's about 60 years ago, we had some evangelical guys like J.I. Packard and Billy Graham and John Stott and Francis Schaeffer. Some people call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's kind of funny. Um, And so they, they had these things they fought for. And then after that, there were just some uh, assumptions in our culture about theology and doctrine. And then come along people who begin to question it. They say, oh, we're not denying it. We just want to question. And so they question the authority of Scripture, the nature of sin, the atoning work of Christ, uh, the requirement of saving faith in Christ for salvation. And then what happens now is most people are just ignoring it or denying it altogether. Even when we take, like, heroes of our day, we still lift them up without the Christ portion of it. Like, take the story of Jackie Robinson, you know, the movie 42 that just came out. You know, it, it's all about his inner strength that had him stand up and do this. Well, if you read Jackie Robinson's real story, he did it because of Jesus. You know, you've got, Jesus was like, you know, the segregation, it is not good. Martin Luther King, what well, he did, it's because of Jesus. The segregation is not good. You know, God calls us, his people, we are his children. It doesn't matter what color you are. And so they fight for it because of Jesus. But now it's just, oh, they were just really strong. And it was, it was because of Jesus that they did what they did. And even today in churches now, you know, people say, well, my faith just works for me. It just works for me. It's, not, it's private. I don't have to tell anybody about it. It's, it's just, it shouldn't be public. And what happens is there becomes a diminishing of living on a mission like we talked about last week. It becomes all about us and our comfort. There's a diminishing of boldness. We start to say things like, well, God is whatever you want him to be. It starts to take root. And it starts to show up in younger and younger people today. Younger and younger people love spiritual experiences, but they do not like informed theological instruction. I think some of that's different in element because we kind of go after our kids for this, so yay, go some of them. But still, the evidence suggests statistically the average younger evangelical who's going to be required to carry the baton of the church into the future is a hopeless mess. Uh, we went through element U, and we talked about the Street element U a little bit. So, D. A. Carson and John Dickerson kind of talk about four marks of what uh, a Christian would be. First off, it would be belief in the Bible as God's word. We trust the Scriptures handed down to us, the rule and the life of faith. Second thing would be the cross—that Jesus is God. He came and He died the, the death we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived. He raises us to new life. He is our Savior. Third thing is conversion. We are not born Christians. We become born again through the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus. And the fourth one is activism. And don't get me wrong when I say activism. I don't mean holding signs and yelling at people. What I mean by activism is you are actively welcoming people because Jesus has welcomed you. Because the gospel has done something transformative in your life. True faith does something. If you're really excited about something, you talk about it. You ever meet somebody who got a new car? They can't stop talking about it. It's like, oh, my car! Oh, my car smells like a new car. Oh, your car is horrible. My car is great. They're always just talking about it. If you love Jesus and you're excited about, you're going to talk about Jesus. We give, we care, we serve, we participate, we live on mission. And when you see all these studies today that ask people, you know, what percentage of Americans are Christians, and, they, and it comes back, it's always right now between forty to seventy percent. But you look at what's going on in our culture. Does it really feel like forty to seventy percent are people who actually follow what the Scriptures say? Well, no. So, John Dickerson, in his books, The Great Evangelical Recession, says when you take the data and compare it to, you know, like this kind of paradigm in it, he says really between 7 to 8.9% of Americans profess and actually live out that faith. And what that means, as things begin to go forward, if you call yourself a Christian and you want to maintain comfort, either you're going to have to compromise very soon and go with culture, or you might begin to lose some of your comfort. That's simply how it is. Now, Smyrna was a church that said, hey, you know, no matter what happens, no matter where our city goes, we're going to be faithful, even if it brings us sorrow. We're going to serve Jesus, even if we lose everything. Now, today we're told by a lot of Christian authors, oh, you know, God is just there to bless you. And blessing means comfort, and blessing means giving you whatever you want. That's not true. God grows us through the hardest times in our lives. Now, why do I think all these things could actually be good things for us? Because when there are no longer benefits to professing a faith that that you don't actually possess, we're going to be able to see who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ much better. When you're not elected to city council because of what church you attend. When you're not admired because you go to church on a Sunday. When you say you're a Christian, people start scrutinizing your life, which I think we could all use even harder. It's going to begin to change how we live. And today this is starting to happen. You know, we say you're a Christian, you're going to start to be labeled as an extremist. You may lose a tenured professorship. Your town has a cross somewhere. That cross is going to come down. You may be called bigoted or intolerant or you're not diverse enough. If you're sitting with a group of people and you say you're a Christian, in that group you're going to be seen as the least open-minded. While the atheist is going to be seen as the most open-minded. Even though that's a faith, okay? <laughs> it's a three pounds in my head. I don't believe Okay, you believe in you. Got it, got it. And the result is that less and less of those who are not Christians are going to be willing to call themselves Christians. And that means we're going to be able to proclaim and preach the gospel more effectively. We're going to be able to stop fighting against this awful Christian subculture out there and firmly step into a culture who needs the gospel of Jesus. It says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna, element, you get true life. And it is a completely different type of life. When you start to hit Lent and you ask some questions, it's like, are you willing to suffer, yet remain faithful to the teachings of Scripture no matter what ends up happening in your life? When things look the bleakest in your life, it does not mean that God is absent or that God failed. The early church grew and expanded the most under the harshest persecution. Today, we have become so flabby and weak in our faith that every little bit amount of pain, we start to question God. I mean, imagine you go out and you devote your life to helping some people with some incurable disease. And then eventually you catch that incurable disease. You know, what should your response be? Makes sense. <laughs> you know, makes. But what, what do we do? God, how dare you? I was serving. I was doing the right thing. How dare you let me get sick with this? I mean, we do this all the time. You know, God, how dare you let my loved one die? How dare you let my marriage fall apart even though I'm ignoring them the entire time and being a butthole? God, how dare you let me lose my job even though I stole all the post-its and and staples? You know, God, how dare you? God is not beholden to us. He says, he who has near let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus says, trust me, trust me in all things. Now, I want to end with something to maybe give you a little bit of encouragement. I kind of beat you down a little bit. Give you a little encouragement now. Uh, Smyrna was a rich city. Uh, again, much like the United States of America is, is a rich country. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. That can actually be a metaphor. I know how destitute you feel. I know things are tough because of all these pressures on you, but you are rich. Uh, the word rich means full. You are full. You may feel empty but because of me you are full. Now, how can that be both? Well, this is great because you've got lampstands and candles and I can, can kind of talk about that in the middle of this. So, I've got these two candles over here. Everybody says, why aren't those lit? What happened to them? It's part of my illustration. So, trust me, I'm a professional. We'll, we'll take care of this over here. Uh, now, if you look at these two candles, we've got a skinny one and we've got a fat one. Fat's okay to say in church. Okay? Now, which candle, the skinnier the fat one, has more wax? It's not, it's not an optical illusion either, Okay? Golly, the larger one? Okay, right. Okay, the the, the fat one. Now, a, a lot of times, you know, we we come in into our lives, and different people are born with like different amounts of wax. Now, the candles both have one wick, and if I light like these wicks, what you'll notice? Oh, thank goodness it works. It'd be horrible, ruin my whole illustration, wouldn't it? If you light like these wicks on these candles, what you'll see is that. They both have the same amount of light, called as one candle water power by the way. Okay? They both have the same amount of light, same amount of heat, same, right? The wax does nothing to add to that flame. You know, the flame is what's there. And what happens is all of us, we are born in our lives. We all are born with a certain amount of wax. But every single one of us is given a wick. We all have a wick. We're all made in the image of God. And what happens is in our, in our lives is, is Jesus comes into our lives We trust him and he lights that wick. We become alive. We start to burn. Jesus brings us to life. And what the amazing thing is this about is is now because of Jesus burning in us, we are showing off light. We are showing off power. We are showing off these things. And the great blessing that Jesus gives us by lighting our wick means that we get to go around and help light other people's wicks. We get to be part of his work in the world. That's how powerful a wick is once it is actually lit. It doesn't matter how much wax you have. What it matters is if your wick is lit. See, Jesus is saying, I know you feel like a tiny candle, like your world is starting to fall apart around you. I know you want more wax. But don't forget, your wick is lit. You are lit, and you are rich beyond anything, and nobody can take that away from you. No amount of wax added or taken away can change the fact. And so this is the idea that we live for Christ in all things, no matter what circumstances, because we are lit. I mean, I was thinking about this. The richest people in the world that I can think of are like Bill Gates, Carlos Slim, and Warren Buffett. Those are like the three guys, okay? I mean, I think about movies and stuff. I think like, I don't know, Robbie Downey Jr., what does he make for being Iron Man now, like $100 million? I don't know, whatever. But they got a whole lot of wax. I mean, they got a lot of wax, But they don't have any greater access to the joy and the grace and the peace of God than any one of us. Because it's Jesus that lights our wick. And whatever comes, he is the one who is faithful. So my question for you today, Smyrna element for you, is are you more concerned with wax? Are you more concerned with Christ? Are you more concerned with mirroring the culture around you or mirroring the gospel of Jesus Christ? When things fall apart in your life, do you focus on the wax that you lost or the wax that you wanted or the wax that you wish you had? Or do you focus on the light that Jesus has brought into your life by saving you? When everything falls apart, do you trust in the hope and the grace of the gospel no matter what happens? These are the hard questions that we must go through. When you start to do Lent, what is more important to you, wax or Christ, culture or Christ? The gospel, what's more important? And these are hard things to do. This is one of the reasons why we take you to communion every week, where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip in the wine of the grape juice, reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. You've got to get out of your seat to do it. It's a response. But in that moment and in that taking place, it's the reminder that it doesn't matter how much or how little wax is there. It's a reminder that Jesus is the one who came and died for our sin and rose from the dead to bring us back to life, and he is the one who lights us. He is the one who burns in us. It is his gospel, his grace, his salvation. He is the one. And in communion, that's what we remember, that he is going to live in and through us. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we're going to have some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, I mean, maybe, maybe you're in a spot today where you feel like, I don't have any wax. You know, I don't have anything. And so, and so you're just totally always focusing on the wax. They would love to pray with you about that. If you have any questions, you know, about understanding what it means to actually be lit and live in the gospel, the grace of Jesus, they'd love to talk to you about that as well. Because Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. We have offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, so you have that opportunity. But we don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. It's all in response to what he has done. He has first given to us and we give. There's food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat, meet some other people, go through the questions that are in there and, and start to connect with one another and ask one another those those hard questions. You know, those questions of, you know, what are you more concerned with in your life? Is it wax or is it Christ? Sometimes the people who have the least amount of wax are the most obsessed with it. Because we just want more, we need more. If I just had more, oh, I'd really feel, oh, I just need. Everything is about Jesus. When we understand and focus on the wick that has been lit, everything begins to change. And so we trust him. We trust him. No matter what hardship and no matter what internal dissonance, whatever pressure takes place, whatever has happened, it's all focused our lives on him. Uh, Donald where's, Donald's going to come and actually pray for us to make it not weird when I put a guitar on. <laughs> so he's going to pray for us as we... All
1: right. <clears throat> All right. Join me in prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I, I thank you for... We, we, we as a people thank you for everything that you've done for us. Um, I, I pray that we are a people that understand your greatness that we don't mirror the culture around us um, or redeem it, but that we live by your, your, your word, your standards, the, what you have set before us, that we can trust in, in the scriptures that you have given us. Um, when we are about to be, you know, those going through a hard time, when we're about to be burned at the stake, so to speak, that we can be a people that, you know, remember everything you've done to us, that you've won the race already for us that you've given that victory to us lord and that we can be a people that remember that you have done us no wrong you've already you know been the victor for us lord and that we are a people that e- even when we lose everything that is around us that we are faithful that we still live out the gospel to those around us that we still let that flame burn strong within us and that we can be a people that that help light the wick to those around us that we can be a people that are living the gospel for you and loving you lord thank you for everything you do thank you for winning that victor victory for us thank you for sharing your glory with us and sharing that crown with us in your name we pray